welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello and welcome back to our latest edition of Arbitral Insights. Welcome to this edition. And I'm very happy to have today as our guest, the Honourable Wayne Martin ACQC, who was the Chief Justice of Western Australia. Hello, Wayne. Hello, Gatton. It's really, really good to have you with us. And you're our first Australian guest. So I'm greatly honoured. I'm greatly honoured. <laughs> it's great to have you. And just a little bit about you, first of all. You were, as I mentioned, the Chief Justice of Western Australia uh, between 2006 and your retirement in July 2018. Prior to that, you had a very illustrious practice at the Western Australian Bar, practicing in commercial litigation and arbitration, and your sectors uh, were included mining, energy, natural resources and construction, as well as banking and finance. As Chief Justice, you created and managed the arbitration list of the Supreme Court of Western Australia, and you've been a very big contributor to judgments in the arbitration field. So it's really, really good to have you with us. You were also, prior to becoming a judge, you were involved in a number of law reform and research roles, and it's really wonderful to have you. And and now you've transitioned to an arbitration role, but as an arbitrator. And we're going to talk about that in the course of this discussion. So Wayne, I think a fitting way to start off is what, first of all, brought you to the discipline of the law? Well, this is a rather embarrassing start to our discussion. (laughs) I'd love to be able to say it was a heartfelt vocation that I've wanted to pursue all my life. But unfortunately, the answer is a lot more mundane than that. I finished school with, fortunately, with quite good grades, but I didn't know what to do. And in those days, if you had good grades and you were eligible to do medicine, the expectation was that you'd do medicine. But my older sister was doing medicine and she was bringing home bits of bodies in bottles and I didn't fancy that. So I thought I'd better try and do something else, but I didn't know what else to do. I had a girlfriend at the time and she was going to do law. So I thought, well, that's as good a reason for doing law as any. So I enrolled in law with her and the rest just seems to have followed on. So it's a fairly mundane reason, I'm afraid. <laughs> but no, but uh, but fabulous nonetheless. So so when you were studying law and you'd finished your legal studies, what drew you to what we would call a counsel practice? Hmm. So um, here, a barrister practice, because in yeah. because in Australia, I'm right in saying, aren't I, that you have a fused profession. Yep. So it, it varies from state to state, but in Western Australia, which is my home state, it's certainly a fused profession, and the bar is of relatively re- recent origin, only about 50 years old. But I'd always been interested in the advocacy side of it ever since watching television dramas as a kid, and I'd done a lot of debating at school, and my nickname at school, unfortunately, was Jiva, which tells you a bit about how much I like <laughs> to talk. And so advocacy seemed a fairly obvious uh, obvious role. In those days, in the early 70s, I, I had in mind crime because I thought that's a good way of getting lots of advocacy experience done and most of the TV dramas were all around crime. So I did quite a lot of 
showed great interest in crime and I came to London, did a master's degree at King's College with a few criminal subjects. But then unfortunately, when I went into that area of practice, I discovered that unfortunately, most of your clients are criminals. And so they weren't, yeah. the, nicest, they weren't the nicest people to work with. And there's a, there can be a certain sameness about criminal cases, whereas commercial cases have a lot more variety and complexity. Um, so, but, but advocacy was always going to be my, my main interest. And are there any cases, Wayne, from your time as a practitioner at the bar that really sort of stick out in your mind? I mean, no need to name any names that you can't name, but are there any sort of sorts of cases or any particular cases that really stick out for you? Oh, look, there was there was one that was quite interesting about, uh, and it's it's all public domain stuff, so I can I can talk about it. It was about a a, a a big drilling platform that was to be installed in the gas field off the northwest shelf of Western Australia, and it was a massive one of these plat- platforms that sinks into the seabed. They constructed it in Indonesia, towed it out to where it was going to be installed, and then the way they install these things is they they tow them out sideways with the legs up sideways, and then they invert them. And they sink them, and they have to sink them so that the legs sink into the seabed and anchor the thing effectively in the seabed. So the rate at which it sinks into the seabed is critical. And if it goes too fast, the legs will buckle, and you can't put the the, the struts that go down through the legs to really anchor in the seabed. You can't get them down. If it goes too slow, it won't go far enough into the seabed to properly anchor itself. So it's a very complex procedure. Well, this one went too fast. The legs buckled. There was only one thing they could do, and that was to take it up, take it off to Indonesia and rebuild it at a cost of 400 million US in those days. This was 25 years ago when 400 million US was quite a lot of money. And so then the company that owned the rig claimed on the insurance policy. The insurers then sued my clients, who were the Texas-based designers of the rig, and said that they were responsible for the loss. And I, they, they were suing as subrogate, obviously. So I said, well, let's have a look at the policy under which you're suing. And then the argument was, well, we're insured under that policy as well because it's contractor's all risk policy. So not only do you insure the owner of the rig, but you insured us as a contractor. So if you sue us, we'll just claim under the policy and you'll end up, we just end up going round and round in a circle. So I took that as a preliminary point and it ended up resolving the case. So that was, that was all the nice issues about construction and fabrication whose fault it was all disappeared because of an insurance point so that was that was quite fun quite interesting fabulous yeah no i mean there's lots of money in these offshore yeah. uh, drilling platforms oh yeah well i mean that's a great thing about growing up in western australia and, and and being a practitioner in western australia during my lifetime western australia became a, a mining and energy province of, of international mm. magnitude you know it is and, and it produced some very interesting cases big mining cases about the value of product and price resetting of gas and all of those sort of things, which, as I say, during my Perth, where I live, is a pretty sleepy little town in the 70s, but it, it, it's become now quite a significant commodity centre. Yeah. Now, one thing about Perth, which is completely unarbitration or law-related, uh, although, as you know, I've been to Australia, but not to Perth as yet, someone once told me that if you look up from space, you can see the lights in Perth very, very clearly uh, because the air is quite thin. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Well, but... there's two reasons. First of all, there's, there's very little pollution, but also there are no other lights to confuse you. <laughs> it is one of the, arguably the most isolated city on the planet. So you're not, you're not distracted by other things. So. Yeah, well, well, another reason why, and again, 
unlaw related why I'd love to get to Perth is I love my cricket uh-huh. and I've and before the Wacker became the old stadium yeah. in Perth I always wanted to go to the Wacker I've been to the MCG and the SCG but I haven't but I've I've had the Wacker on my wish list so maybe yeah. I can oh. go to, to to the new Perth stadium when you come out we'll get them, we'll certainly make sure that you get to the Wacker unfortunately the big games aren't played at the Wacker anymore they're yeah. played at the, at the new oval. But if you come out, I'll try and try and organise a dinner with my good friend Dennis Lilly, who I'm sure would love to have a glass of wine with you. So oh my we goodness! Can organise that. Well, you know, this shows how spontaneous this discussion is. <laughs> De- you know, DK Lilly three five five wickets in his Test career. Yeah. Uh, an absolutely amazing cricketer. Wow. And a and a really nice bloke too. I've got to say, a really nice bloke with a great. You know, he he and the late lamented Rodney were famous for their enthusiasm for beer, but actually. Um, they're now, well, Rodney was until his untimely passing recently, mm. both great wine lovers um, mm. and particularly with a particular interest in French wine, which is contrary to the cultural stereotypical image that you have of those two guys. <laughs> they're both bits of larrikins, but they're, they're actually quite sophisticated guys. Oh, what a great topic. I could talk to you about this for ages, but I'm going to go back to uh, yeah. law and arbitration. But, uh, I've shown you my cards there. Yeah, good. But, you know, so then... One of the things that's fascinating is about how arbitration has developed as a discipline over the years. Yeah. And before I sort of approach the subject more broadly, just going back to your time on the bench when you established the arbitration list, mm. um, a number of our listeners will not be familiar with what the arbitration list entailed. And I wonder what, first of all, led you to set up the list okay. and what the list actually meant uh, in practice? Well, I'm a firm believer in arbit- arbitration is, is supposed to be, in all the legislation, the Act all, all say it, it's supposed to be quick, cheap and effective. And if you get delays in arbitration cases in court, it de- defeats the purpose of arbitration. And so as Chief Justice, I became aware of a case in the court in which one of my colleagues, unfortunately, had reserved his decision on a, an arbitration matter for over nine months. And I thought, well, that's totally unacceptable uh, unfortunately, not all of my coll- colleagues had the arbitration background. They didn't understand that expedition was an important aspect of arbitration. So I said, we need a specialist list and we need somebody to run that list who knows about arbitration and who can get through the cases quickly. And the person I thought of was my own personal good self. So I set it up and ran with it. And because I because I've got, I had a, quite a bit of experience in arbitration, I was able to do it quickly and, and get it done. And that way, most a, a lot of the courts in Australia and the Australian jurisdictions now have specialist lists with specialist judges who know what they're doing. And I think that's that's it's also been consistent with the development of what I think is significant international jurisprudence in this field so that we would commonly cite in Australia, we would commonly cite decisions in Singapore and Hong Kong and other arbit- what, I, what I would call arbitration-friendly jurisdictions um, because those jurisdictions are now all pretty much singing from the same song sheet in terms of courts providing support for arbitration, the hands-off approach except where support is needed, um, you know, a very strict approach to challenges, a very strict approach to challenges to awards, to resisting enforcement, all of those sort of things that I think are now pretty well established in, in most civilised arbitration-friendly jurisdictions. It's very interesting. So that list, the arbitration list that you mentioned that you set up as Chief Justice and which in many ways has rolled out to other parts of the country as well, is, 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 I think, quite similar to how our commercial court deals with things. Yeah. Uh, where yeah. we have specialist judges who practiced in the field when they were at the bar 
who who deal with those sorts of applications and ensure they get dealt with you know swiftly. I think it goes a bit deeper than that in the sense that one of the things I did as Chief Justice was, you know, I've been an advocate of change for a while and, you know, I was on the Law Reform Commission for a while and we made significant changes to the procedures of the court when I was Chief Justice. And I, I borrowed heavily on my arbitration experience in making those changes. And what I th- and I think also, if you go back historically, the big procedural changes for courts were modelled on the Wolf reforms of the late 90s, a lot of which borrowed heavily on arbitration practice and were focused on the idea that there's a tailor-made solution, a bespoke solution for each case, rather than under the old rules in the white book, you know, every case you start the case, you issue a writ, you then do a statement of claim, you then do that. And, and so it was, a, it was a bespoke solution that would that's fit the circumstances of the case. I think what's happened, though, is that the courts have borrowed from arbitration practice, flexibility, efficiency, getting on with it, identifying the, the, the substantive issues early and dealing with those issues. That has now become mainstream practice in most of the courts to the point where the courts are actually doing it, I think, more in some instances more effectively than arbitral tribunals are. It varies, of course, from tribunal to tribunal. But the courts have got a big advantage in the sense that they can make coercive orders and you can, you can issue sanctions for non-compliance, ultimately up to default judgment, which is not an option that arbitral tribunals have. So I think what's happened is that, uh, you know, the courts have, to an extent, caught up with arbitration and indeed overtaken arbitration to some extent in terms of expedition and flexibility. And now I think the shoe's on the other foot. Arbitration has to look to, look to its laurels and, and try and make sure that it is competitive with contemporary litigation. You know... You've read my mind, Wayne, because that's one of the things I want to come back to. Sure. Um, in, in the subject matter of how do we improve arbitration? Mm. Because yep. what you've put your finger on there is a really critical point, which so many of us think is really critical. Mm. Uh, but I'll come back to that in a minute. Sure. So I think it's fair to say that, again, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the system in Australia, that Australia is what one what we would call a pro-arbitration jurisdiction, where the courts do not needlessly interfere in arbitration. I mean, just from a very, like a sort of a a broad view, I mean, do you think that's been a uh, shift that's been quite recent? Yes, absolutely, Gautam. I think one of the problems with Australia and one one of the reasons that, you know, competitors in the field of arbitration say you shouldn't conduct arbitration in Australia is that there are... It's a federation, and so there are lots of different jurisdictions. And so there are eight supreme courts of the six states and territories, and there's a federal court. So there's nine different jurisdictions. And so critics would say, don't go to Australia because you never know what's going to happen depending on where your seat is. That So uniformity was essential if we were to be competitive internationally. And uniformity has been achieved because the legislation, the governing legislation in all those jurisdictions is now a uniform piece of legislation. And the courts... There was one jurisdiction that was a bit slow to join the party. At the risk of losing friends in Queensland, it was the state of Queensland was a bit late coming to the party, but they got there eventually. And so the courts and and the, the, all the states and federal state and territory supreme courts and the federal court are all uniformly hands off supportive of arbitration, consistently with, as I say, the cases in Singapore and Hong Kong, uh, which we read quite quite a lot, read and cite quite a lot. And that, but it has, I, I would say, if I had to time the in, introduction of that trend, I'd say it was probably about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But, but it's, it's well established now. Yeah, that's really interesting because that time frame is not dissimilar 
from the experience here in England, mm. because as you know, we had a big reform of our, of, of our arbitration law yeah. in 1996, yeah. which really in many ways overhauled the whole sort of policy and outlook towards how the courts approached arbitration. So, you know, very, very interesting. So, you know, now looking at your, since you've stepped down from the bench, which is approaching four years this summer, and your new life as an arbitrator, tell us a little bit about how, and this may sound obvious, but how sitting and thinking as an arbitrator differs and asks different things of you from what you did as a judge? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing, perhaps starting in the sequence of the arbitration, the procedural management is a, is a different style of approach in the sense that you've, you've got to encourage rather than coerce. And so you've got to effectively persuade. Coercion doesn't work in arbitration because if you set unrealistic time limits and they're not met, then, you know, what do you do? You hold your breath until you go blue in the face. There's nothing much you can do about it. Um, so you've got to encourage rather than coerce. The other interesting difference is that, of course, in a multi-member tribunal, the, the case is being managed by three people rather than one. Um, and in a court, it's always managed by one. So you don't, you don't have to consult or confer with anybody in relation to procedural management. But you get the hang of that pretty quickly. And then in, in terms of the hearing itself, uh, I mean, I think the, the innovations of the hearing, the, the, the regular use of the, you know, the, the electronic hearing book now is well established in arbitration. Whereas courts haven't been quite as enthusiastic about, as embracing that model, and the the chess clock system of making sure that people run on time. I mean, those are, I think are all very good uh, good additions. One of the, one of the things that the bane of I think every arbitrator's life is the ubiquitous Redfern schedule. I think if we could find a way of doing away with yeah. that, life would be a lot easier. Although I, I prefer stern schedules, which is much of the same, but it just runs runs a different way down the page. But this, the problems are exactly the same yeah. with either of them. But and but it is interesting. And uh, of course, one of the problems in my four years on the international arbitration circuit is that for two of those years, I've been basically marooned in Western Australia, mm, yeah, and unable to travel. But it hasn't been a huge problem because, of course, the world has turned virtual over those two years anyway. And so uh, it doesn't really matter where one has been for the last two years because most of the hearings have been virtual in any case. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, the world has turned upside down and we've all sort of, you know, doing all doing things differently now, especially virtual hearings. But it must be quite tricky sometimes because if, because if you're sitting with two other uh, mm. arbitrators in different jurisdictions, time zones must play havoc. I mean, have they caused you any havoc in the last couple of years? I'm, I'm very fortunate, Gavin, because I'm in Perth. I'm, I'm usually in the middle of the spread. <laughs> so the, the spread might run from, say, Europe through to the east coast of Australia, and that's fine because I'm in the middle of it. So I, I get the best deal. The, the guy in Europe <laughs> usually has to get up very early. guy or girl in Europe has to get up very early in the morning. And it gets by in the, on the east coast of Australia, it can be quite late at night by the time we're finished. Where, where you get chaos, of course, is if you've got somebody in North America. And that it's very hard to match North America and Australia um, in the same time zones. But from Europe through to Asia, it works pretty well. Um, mm. So that the, but if, if people in Europe are prepared to start at, say, 7 a.m., it works fine. And, you know, what's your sense as to... Fingers crossed, we're moving out of the pandemic now, and thank goodness for that. But do you think remote hearings are largely here to stay and that in-person hearings are going to be the exception rather than the rule? 
I think certainly in-person hearings for procedural hearings, jurisdictional arguments, I think they're gone. I think it would be crazy to to assemble, to, even if it's a hearing of two or three days. If there aren't any witnesses, there's, I think, absolutely no justification for an in-person hearing. Uh, and I think in some, even with some in-person, you know, witness-based hearings, there will be a preference for, for virtual hearing. I had one first procedural hearing last week where the party made clear that whatever the position was in relation to the pandemic, they wanted a virtual hearing. But I think in other cases, there will be a tendency to go back to the evidentiary hearing being in person where possible. I think just because you know people are, are used to that, yet they, they like the witnesses to be present. Um, I, I think there is an unreal attribution of importance to the demeanour of a witness in the way in which they give their evidence, uh, both as a judge and as an arbitrator. I'm, I'm not influenced by the demeanour of a witness really at all. It's it's what the witness says rather than how they say it that's important. And credibility is assessed by reference to the inherent plausibility of the, the evidence given by reference to the objective facts established by the contemporaneous documents, not by demeanour. And you can assess that just as readily over, over a video. And the other issue, of course, is that particularly in international arbitration, demeanour is a very unreliable... It, it, at best, it's an unreliable guide to credibility, but it's... Um, very dangerous in an international environment because, of course, demeanour is so culturally determined and so you can make mistakes by applying your own assumptions drawn from your own culture to the way in which somebody from another culture expresses them and conducts themselves. Um, So it can be absolutely dangerous. So, you know, I, I think there will be a mix. I think there'll be a series of hybrid hearings. The hearing I'm doing here next week will be a hybrid There'll be some witnesses appearing by video and some in person, and I, I think that's the model that we'll see. And there's nothing new to me about that because my own state of Western Australia, it's a vast area. Um, it's a third of a continent, very sparsely populated. We've been using video witnessing for 25, 30 years um, just because of the difficulties of transport. So, you know, I'm, I'm quite familiar with it. I'm, I'm very comfortable with it. One of the things I do miss, though, with the virtual hearing is the conferral amongst the, the three arbitrators. I think that the opportunity to confer during the coffee break, the lunch break, and perhaps have a meal during the week, you get a you get a much better feel for how your colleagues are thinking about the case when you do that than than, than video. So that's that's one of the disadvantages, I think. No, no, that's very that's very interesting, and and also the point you make about Western Australia and about the experience of doing things virtually. Yeah, it's a huge state. I mean, it it probably encompasses lots and lots and lots of countries and other parts of the world. About, it's about six and a half times the size of France. Wow. So <laughs> that does give us a feel for why virtual hearings in Western Australia were so, were so apt. So, you know, one thing that always fascinates me is that now, you know, you've had on any estimation an incredibly illustrious career and on the, as a counsel, as a judge, now as an arbitrator. And, you know, you inspire many people. Who inspired you when you were building your practice? Look, I, I was very fortunate to have a number of mentors in, in my firm. I practised as a solicitor for in the fused profession for seven or eight years before going to the bar. And one of the partners in, in that firm, a guy called McFarlane, was was really good to me. And I learned a lot from him about how how to conduct yourselves. And then when I went to the bar or even as a, even as a solicitor, I was fortunate to work with some really, really good senior counsel, Murray Gleeson. Chief Justice of Australia, one of the best counsel I have ever seen, just a brilliant, brilliant lawyer and a really nice bloke. 
David Malcolm, who was my predecessor as Chief Justice of Western Australia, another outstanding lawyer, was was very good to me. And another guy from the Sydney Bar called Dick Conti, who was a silk that I worked with a lot. And you just, you do, if you work with good people, you learn a lot just from watching how they do things. Um, and so I, I was very fortunate to be exposed to some some really good lawyers when I was a young lawyer learning the, learning the trade myself. And, you know, what can we do, do you think, Wayne? And, you know, this is a shared effort that we all have across all jurisdictions. Yeah. What can we all do collectively to better diversity in international arbitration? Because we do have things like the pledge. Yep. We have you know, regular calls of which, and I also am a strong advocate of more ethnic diversity amongst arbitrators. What can we do as a community to to make that better? Well, I'm a classic example of the problem. (laughs) 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 And it's funny, I think I I was the inaugural chair of a, a group in Australia called the Judicial Council on Cultural Diversity. And one of my friends at the Supreme Court of New South Wales rang me up when he heard about my appointment of this and he said he couldn't think of anybody less qualified to, <laughs> to, to head a judicial council on cultural I'm diversity. sure it was a compliment, Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> but so, you know, but I am I am typical of the problem. There's far too many middle-aged, pale, stale males. Um, and so we need we need and 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 pledges are great because they get people thinking about it, but it's got to become ingrained and it's got to become, and I think the appointors have to just step out of the the normal routine and think, oh well, we need an arbitrator. Who are we going to think of? Oh, X. He's been good. We've used him in the past. You've just got to, you know, apply your mind to and try and think. Well, we do need, we do need diversity, and we need diversity in this profession. It's you know, it's it's international arbitration is the key to it. So we need cultural diversity. We need gender diversity, and we need age diversity as well. There's you know, as I say, there's too many old blokes like me rattling around the tracks. You know, it needs. <laughs> Need some younger people and, 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 and diverse both in gender and culture. Yeah. No, I think it's certainly a work in progress, but, you know, we'll get there. But certainly, you know, I can say, and I say this with, with a full heart, you are definitely a great thing for international arbitration and by no means um, anything negative. So, you know, just before we, we sort of round up on some more lighthearted chat, which I always like to end up on, I just want to return to a theme that we briefly touched on a bit earlier, which is about how we improve arbitration, because you've mentioned very helpfully the in the context of the arbitration list, the importance of speed, mm. uh, the importance of efficiency. But you touched upon a really important point earlier, which so many of us and our clients regularly say. The arbitration has become really long-winded. It's become cumbersome, far too expensive. We wait far too long for awards and that sort of thing. And there are things that can be improved. So, for example, you touched upon coercive orders and the fact that in arbitration, you just can't do that, really. Uh, But you can do it as a judge. So I wonder if you could share some thoughts about how we can improve the process. Yeah, look, I I think you're exactly right. Certainly the feedback I I hear from from lawyers and from clients is that arbitration has become very slow and expensive. And and I see people people are voting with their feet. They're looking at other alternatives. And Certainly during COVID, there was out in Australia where I am, there was a lot more um, experimentation with different models so that I did a number of expert determinations. They call them expert determinations. Really, they are they're quick and dirty arbitrations on the papers is, is really what they are. And that's, again, people want certainty and they want expedition 
uh, and they're prepared to sacrifice quality in order to achieve those objectives. So I think we've got to, as arbitrators and as arbitration community, we've got to accept that that's what people want and say, well, you know, in the spectrum between absolute quality of investigating every issue, chasing every rabbit down every burrow, massive amounts of disclosure of documents, um, you know, witnesses coming out of here, there and everywhere, taking years, costing millions and millions of pounds or dollars. Dude, is that what the market really wants? Or is the market more interested in a compromise in terms of trading off some of the excellence for speed and efficiency? And the, and the way I used to, the analogy I used to use when I was a judge to say was, you know, we've got, looking at the justice system, we've got a terrific justice system. It's the Rolls-Royce of justice systems. It, it, it's, it's really, really good if you want to find out what actually happened. The remedies are there, the systems are there through disclosure and interrogatories and all of that. And it's a bit like a Rolls-Royce, but the trouble is if you can't afford to put the petrol in the Rolls-Royce, all you, you can admire it, you can sit in it, you can polish it, you can boast about it, but it's not actually achieving its role of taking you from somewhere to somewhere else. So maybe we're better off with a, you know, a more economical vehicle that will actually will afford to put the petrol in and take us from one place to the other. And I think that's what we need with arbitration. We need to be a bit a bit more innovative about cutting some time out of it. I think we've also got to, as arbitrators, we've got to be more robust. I think there is, there's this phenomenon that everybody talks about, due process paranoia. I think it might be more, you know, more imaginary than real, but I think it does exist so that uh, certainly I don't feel, uh, as an arbitrator, I don't feel I have the same capacity to make, you know, quite dramatic procedural orders as I did when I'm a judge, but maybe that's where we need to get back to. We need to get back to sort of more interventionist tribunals. Awards are, people are nervous about awards being set aside because of denial of procedural fairness or due process. It almost never happens in arbitrator, depends on where you're going to enforce, but in arbitrator-friendly jurisdictions, it virtually, there's, I'm not aware of any case in which an award has been set aside on the basis of procedural orders. So, you know, I think we've just got to be a bit more robust and bring them but you can't do it coercively you've got to as i said earlier you've got to encourage you've got to persuade you've got to bring people along with you and explain to them why it is in everybody's best interests to adopt this particular procedure very very interesting thank you wayne you know just a few things to round up because you know i could literally go on for a long long more time with you and i'm mindful of your time as well well, I, well um, I'm, I'm enjoying our chat too Gavin. no well i mean i mean i could talk to you for another half hour on cricket but i'm not going to do that <laughs> but, uh, as much as i'm tempted to although please don't mention the ashes to me please <laughs> um, but um you know just looking at sort of a bit more light-hearted things you live in a wonderful country australia and you've got and fingers crossed, we're getting out of the pandemic more fully pretty soon. Is there one place that you've not been to that you'd really love to travel to? Yeah, I, I had a I had a trip to one of the amongst the trips that got cancelled because of you know what was a trip to the Galapagos, and I'd really love to go there. I was I was loving to do that. So we're combining trip with that to the Amazon rainforest as well. So those are two things I really want to do. And so we'll try and try and get them back on the agenda if we can. So, and then is there any particular film that is your absolute, if ever you had a chance to sit back and just put on a film, your, what's your favourite film? This is going to sound terribly cliched for a lawyer, I'm afraid, Gautam, but To Kill a Mockingbird was one of, was one of my inspirations about going into the mm. law back in the early days. You know, that, that great film with Gregory Peck and the, 
the, the racial division in the southern town and, and the lawyer doing the right thing because it had to be done. I, that was just a great movie. Very, very well done, I thought. So that, that's one of my favourites. And I make my children watch it because some, some of my children are doing law too. I said, so this, this is the sort of lawyer I want you to be. So that's, that's well, it's great. Well, it's a great learning ground, isn't it? Because, yeah. uh, I mean, some of those principles there about, you know, fighting for your client, yeah. you know, having integrity, you know, taking all the key points, not, not giving up. Yeah. Are what that film has certainly taught yeah. so many of us. Yeah, no, it's a great movie. It's a classic. And I just hope they don't remake it because one of the problems with some of these classic films is they get remade yeah. and, then, and they're never the same. No, no. You know, the same Twelve Angry Men was another one. That the first one was, I think they've done that a couple of times now. That was just the first time they did that was great. An interesting insight into jury systems, which, <laughs> you know, not, not, very, not very encouraging. But anyway. Yeah. Well, it's incredible. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, my last question to you is this. You come from the great city of Perth in Western Australia. Is there any other city in Australia that you really, really enjoy visiting? Yeah, I mean, Sydney is a lovely city. I, I enjoy, I lived in Sydney for 18 months. I wouldn't live there now. I've got a daughter who lives there, but I love visiting Sydney. It is, a, it is one of the most beautiful cities in, in the world. It is a very attractive city. It's, it's just, it's a buzz. So I, I love visiting there. Thank you very much, Wayne. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much for taking your time. Absolute pleasure, Gavin. And I look forward to showing you around Perth when you come out. I can't wait. I've got to tell you, I can't wait, Wayne, because I love Australia. Not been to Perth, as you know. Um, I only know of three places in Western Australia, Perth, Broome and McLaren Vale. No, McLaren, no, McLaren Vale is in South Australia. Margaret River. Oh, Margaret River. I'm sorry. Margaret, Margaret, Margaret River. And, and no, I've, that just shows. And I've, and I've got a beach house down there, Gardam, so you, oh. you'll come down and stay with me and we'll go to the wineries. Oh, this is even more tempting. But uh, no, no. But it's been, it's been wonderful and thank you ever so much. And I hope everything goes well for you on this trip. Thank you very much. Very nice to talk to you. Thank you. Right. Thank you Thanks. very much. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.